I think it's really interesting to note that for a very long time, hormones like estrogen were just thought to be really responsible for ovarian health, uterine health, and were all about having babies. But in actual fact, it's become very, very clear that estrogen, progesterone and testosterone, the so-called gonadal hormones, are very potent brain steroids. And particularly my studies have been with estrogen and it's really quite remarkable how many areas of the brain this hormone impacts. Well, that is the truly wonderful voice of Jayshree Kulkarni. She's a professor of psychiatry and the research that she does aims to, quote, mend minds by understanding the connection between the brain and hormones. Well, this is the Lizelle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half. I'm Lizelle, and if you're here, you will know by now that I'm on a mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in our later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. And gosh, what a brilliant chat we have for you. There's been so much talk, hasn't there, in the media about menopause and hormones and related to so many conditions and symptoms such as hot flushes and insomnia and all the rest of it. But are you aware of the enormous impact on mood, brain fog, cognitive function, memory, just all those areas that can affect us on the day-to-day that we might not necessarily connect with what's going on with our hormones. Well, a psychiatrist working in Melbourne, Professor Jayshree Kulkarni's research focuses on the role of hormones in mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and depression. She founded the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre and last year launched her Centre Australia, that is a centre dedicated to delivering HER health, education and research in women's mental health. Now, Jayshree is at the forefront of cutting-edge neuroscience discoveries that are being translated into innovative and effective treatment for severe mental illness. So, what do we need to understand about how hormones such as oestrogen influence our brains and what does it all mean for longevity? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing we wondered the same thing so we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Jayshree, welcome. You are an absolute superstar in this field. Can we just backtrack a little bit and say, you know, what led you to psychiatry in the first place? 
gosh, it's a very um, long story now, but um, I've been working as a psychiatrist for 30 plus years and I particularly got interested in women and women's mental health uh, right from the beginning because I felt that when I was working with uh, women that, in fact, it was a neglected area. And as I began to work originally in uh, the sort of big asylum-type places with women with psychosis, I did notice that there was a lot of comments and stories that women told me about the fact that they really thought their mental ill health conditions began with the birth of their children. And, in fact, a couple of uh, ladies back then said to me, it's my hormones, doc. And I thought there really is something in this and it needs to be investigated. And, it, of course, it was poo-pooed at the time and no one was taking it seriously. And that led me into a whole bunch of research that started with schizophrenia and now has expanded into women with depression, women with trauma, and more recently, women with eating disorders. Mm, amazing. So tell me a little bit more about your PhD thesis. That was women and psychosis. Yes, that was a very long time ago now. <laughs> My interest was piqued by patients and by the women's stories. And there were several things that jumped out at me. And as I said, the, the issue of, many women said, my psychosis started either at menopause or it started uh, after the birth of uh, children, both of which are major hormonal times. And I was struck by the fact that a lot of the biological aspects for women with schizophrenia were completely overlooked. Yes, there are important psychological factors at both the uh, perinatal period of, of a woman's life and also at menopause. There are you know, lots of life events, but what struck me was the ferocity in which the women would say that they had been completely well in both cases and then suddenly came down with full-on schizophrenia. So that led me into an area of research looking at the impact of hormones in the brain, particularly estrogen, uh, in a number of different ways. And when we say the word schizophrenia, is that the same as bipolar? Because we're hearing a lot of chat about bipolar, or are they two different things? No, they're technically two different things. But I tried to have a bit each way in the sense of um, I looked at women with psychosis. So I was looking at the whole spectrum. So bipolar is the classic manic depressive illness. It's a mood disorder. But some women would experience that mood disorder and when they were at their worst, uh, either being very manic or being very depressed, they would also have auditory hallucinations and hear voices and so on. So there is a merge at one point. So we're here really to talk about hormones in the brain, as you've said, and oestrogen in the brain in particular. Can you give us perhaps just a broad overview before we take that deep dive into what we need to know about how our hormones influence our brains? I think it's, it's really interesting to note that for a very long time, hormones like oestrogen were just thought to be really responsible for ovarian health, uterine health, and were all about having babies. But in actual fact, as the animal studies have started to become more, more in number and uh, quality, and that's probably only in the recent sort of 10, 15 years, it's become very, very clear that estrogen, estrogens, and there's not just one, progesterone and testosterone, the so-called gonadal hormones, are very potent brain steroids. 
And particularly my studies have been with estrogen and it's really quite remarkable how many areas of the brain this hormone impacts. So it's not surprising that when there are fluctuations of a major type in the brain of estrogen, that in some women there is quite a major change in their mental health or their cognitive capacity. And again, it's not every woman. In fact, most women probably go through life events where there are major hormone fluctuations either in a monthly cycle or in the life cycle without too much fuss. But there are some women who really, really experience significant mental ill health conditions when in particular their estrogen natural hormone is fluctuating in a monthly cycle as well as in the menopause and also post-childbirth. I'm amazed actually whenever I look at the levels of estrogen that we have as women, how there is this enormous surge during pregnancy, absolutely phenomenal. And then by contrast, just how it falls off a cliff when we start to enter perimenopause and, and menopause. It's really dramatic, isn't it, how our levels will change. Look, I think the whole thing is dramatic and, it, you know, it's, it's been quite really bizarre when you think that all of this major hormone shift in the brain has just been ignored and still continues to somewhat be ignored in clinical circuits in terms of what effect this is all having on mental health. It, it's as if for some reason we've sort of worked in completely blinded sort of, uh, you know, dead end alleys where people who are working in gynecology, for example, will be very well versed in the effects of these hormones on the uterus and the ovaries and be very involved in, in reproduction aspects, but then almost have this kind of belief that there's a strange stainless steel barrier across the waist <laughs> and that the, the hormones right. don't have much traffic <laughs> above. And, yeah. and similarly, you know, we have people in mental health who will uh, talk quite knowledgeably about the um, effects of ageing or the effects of trauma and the effects of, um, you know, different sort of social circumstances that women experience, but not mention at all the yeah. hormonal uh, side of it. So again, they've got the same stainless steel barrier. But yeah, on nothing a happens side. below the neck. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, I've, I've literally spoken to dozens of psychiatrists over the years, particularly in recent years, as I've become more involved in, in menopause and, and menopause awareness. And I don't think I have spoken to any that have flagged estrogen. And when I talk about it, there's this sort of almost blank look that comes back at me when you were going through your psychiatric training I know that was quite a long time ago but you know thinking perhaps now to what's happening in medical schools um, for people looking at psychiatry is this an area that's now being looked at hopefully <laughs> I wish I could I wish I could um, share your hopefulness but right, <laughs> right now right now unfortunately we still haven't got there I mean we're trying hard and there is interest there are interesting pockets of research, which, you know, hopefully get translated into clinical practice. But I would have to say, we're still quite behind in terms of this becoming quite a, a well-known consideration uh, in mental health circles. And, and I really do think that programs like yours and, and the, the general media interest is, is the way we're going to 
hopefully get some headway on this particular issue. But we haven't got there yet. It's kind of almost like grassroots, isn't it? It's got to start from the bottom up. And, and, and we as potential patients, women, have to be the ones who are influencing and having these discussions and raising it. You know, when we go to our GP, perhaps, you know, primary care is a kind of the first off before things escalate, you know, flagging it as a potential issue before, you know, we just kind of get dumped on with SSRIs, antidepressants, you know, for our low mood and brain fog and all that sort of thing that presumably menopause is having a genuine effect on the brain here. Absolutely it is. And in fact, the first signs of menopause or the first symptoms of menopause are all the brain ones. So they're exactly what you just said. It's really, you know, menopause starts in the mid 40s and goes for about 10 years on average and it begins in the brain. And so the first things are the sudden onset of panic, anxiety, depressive mood, rage, a sense of just forgetting and not feeling on top of being able to function. So there's a lot of cognition changes as well. But this is the difficult bit. See, they're, they're transient. So what can happen is a woman can feel like she's lost her mind in inverted commas one week and then the very next week will be herself. And so people are looking at, uh, you know, at her and she's looking at herself thinking, did I imagine that or what on earth is going on? And because we don't have a laboratory test, you can't do a blood test that will say this is perimenopause, peri being around. You can't diagnose this other than to have good clinical knowledge and to have a working experience of, of knowing that the first symptoms of menopause are going to be the mental health ones. So we have a lot of issues um, that don't make our job much easier. But I think, as you say, educating women is really critical because I have found that by the time a woman gets to her mid-40s, she really does know a thing or two about herself and she knows a thing or two about how to manage stuff in her environment. So when she says something is not right, it's, it really is critical that health practitioners get that message and then look with her as to, you know, what may be going on and keep this as one of the options that maybe this is uh, the beginning of the menopause process. Mm, really interesting. I Just picking up there something that you said earlier, that there are different types of oestrogen because we do tend to think, oh, it's oestrogen. Do they all have different impacts and and other hormones as well? Are they all kind of playing a part in this little kind of cocktail within the brain? Yes, there are different estrogens. There are even different estrogens in pregnancy. There are different estrogens that come on stream in the uh, menopausal woman. There are different prepubertal estrogens as well, and there are different receptors. So, you know, we, we need to be mindful of the fact that this is a complex system and, you know, the hormone treatments are also complex and there's not just one thing called mm. menopause hormone therapy as well. So there's a lot of mix and match and understanding that things are different and complicated. And then, of course, the oestrogen systems, systems, plural, also impact on the different uh, brain chemistry systems and different brain circuitry systems. So there's a lot going on, but it, it is a, an important and growing area of interest and research in the basic neuroscience area that we're learning more and more about the complexity and the different roles that the different estrogens have. And now we need to actually continue to translate that across into clinical practice 
and also the development of, of uh, corresponding hormone therapies that will pick up on uh, mimicking some of the different sorts of estrogens. Certainly when we're looking at HRT, I don't know how it is in Australia, but but the classic prescription is for estradiol 17, I think, which seems to be the sort of, is that the kind of the, the, the basic one? Is that shown yeah. to have an effect within the brain? Yes. So the beta estradiol 17, so estradiol is the most potent form of estrogen. And it is the one that has a lot of receptors in the brain and the bone, actually. So there are different sorts of receptors in the ovaries and the uterus and other parts of the body and other parts of the brain as well. But really the beta receptors are the ones that we're looking at in terms of brain behaviour. Okay, so let's broaden it out a little bit. What role do hormones play potentially in helping with significant cognitive decline? You know, I'm thinking about things like dementia, Alzheimer's, for example. There are some fabulous studies that have been done and the results came out recently in very, very high-flying journals that do show that, in fact, in women who carry the APOE, which is the APOE gene, that is predisposing to Alzheimer's, for example, that in those women, the uh, initiation of hormone therapy in menopause actually led to an improvement in the actual images in the brain in terms of volumes of brain and grey matter and so on. So it, it is a really important factor to consider. Now, not everybody rushes off and get their total genome sort of, uh, you know, worked out. So we don't Mm. really know exactly who's carrying what. And so it does become an important preventative issue, especially if there's a strong family history. So that's one point. The second point is that in menopause depression, which is a thing, it's a real thing, you know, it's depression created and caused by the fluctuations of the gonadal hormones in the menopause process. This is a depression where there are changes in the brain that actually respond really well to treatment with hormone therapy. And that's also been shown in brain imaging studies. So that's pretty convincing as well. So I think those two imaging studies that have hit the presses more recently, I I think are really significant because for a long time there was sort of almost a poo-pooing of the idea that, you know, you could use hormone therapy for depression. And I still think there's a lot of trepidation, which we're still not quite sure why, but it, it, it does involve a mythology that hormone treatment will cause cancers and do all sorts of bad things. And I think the Women's Health Initiative study that was done in 2001 and had made made sensational headlines, (laughs) it's it's all been debunked. But I still, in clinical practice, I still have primary healthcare practitioners who say, oh, I can't possibly prescribe HRT because, you know, it'll cause cancer. And we haven't managed to dispel that notion once something makes the sensational headlines, it's very hard when you've got a page 23 retraction for people to, uh, to you know, really get that perspective. And, I, and, of course, nobody wants to create a new problem and particularly a bad problem like cancer. You know, that's certainly something that we don't want to be doing. But I think we've got to think what are we doing when someone's quality of life is completely shattered 
menopausal depression and cognitive decline that could be treated successfully with hormone therapy. You've got to do the risk-benefit analysis there. Yeah, and as you know, successfully and safely. Some of the more recent studies on estrogen show it to be actually cancer protective, even yes. with breast cancer. So it's, we're getting there. But it, as you say, you know, it's like a, an ocean going tanker. It has a long stopping distance. And when we have to try and turn it around, it's it's going to take a bit of time, isn't it? But hopefully, you know, the work that you're doing and the amazing studies and, and, and the, the, the just the discussions about it. You know, I, I hope this podcast is actually shared by women listening who can share it with their primary hair practitioners and their friends working in healthcare and you know particularly with um, with mental health now I know that you've also used hormones to treat other mental conditions you know we've talked about schizophrenia bipolar depression does that work in the same way then sort of filling in these the, the missing links within the, the estrogen brain receptors yes it does and um, sometimes I, I give people the analogy that estrogen is like chocolate syrup that you can pour on the ice cream and it'll just go into all the different little areas. Yum. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it's a, it's a ubiquitous in the brain. There is so there are so many different areas of the brain that it works on that it's not a necessarily a targeted treatment for everything, not by any long shot, but it definitely has neuroprotective effects and we think that's through both genomic and non-genomic pathways as well as direct effects on circuitry, neurocircuitry, brain circuitry. So, you know, it, it's it's got a lot of different effects. And again, it's really interesting that in certain groups of women, they are much more vulnerable to shifts in their estrogen levels in the brain. And we think this is linked to early life trauma. So women who women who've had early life emotional or physical or sexual trauma seem to have an alteration in their brain biology related to alteration in their stress hormone levels. I mean, all the hormones, the lovely hormones all talk to each other, of course, and the stress hormone cortisol and its and its other derivatives really have major impacts on the governing of the estrogen and the other gonadal hormones. And so when something goes wrong or is, is difficult for a, a woman as a girl, um, unfortunately that can create this more sensitive environment in the brain so that she's the one that then develops premenstrual depression and is more likely to develop postnatal depression and more likely to develop menopausal depression. That's not to say that everybody who gets those three things, you know, necessarily has early life trauma, but we have noticed that there is an increased sensitivity in that group. And, and again, that's another area that's really important to explore because in this day and age, the modern practice of psychiatry and mental health really needs to be holistic, needs to really take into account the biological impacts along with the psychological impacts along with the social or environmental impacts and it's a circle so what goes on in the environment affects the biology and what goes on in the biology affects the psychology and so on so we don't differentiate and say we'll just look at the biology no we don't we look at the whole context and it's really important for women to understand that they do if they have had early life trauma that 
you know, their biology may also be affected. There are solutions, but, you know, they still need to be aware of that. So fascinating. I know a lot of people listening to this, you know, it's going to spark a lot of interest. Can we repair brain damage then with oestrogen or is it just too late once the damage is done? No, the brain is always able to be repaired and not just by oestrogen. It can be repaired by a whole range of things. Again, coming back to the biological, psychological and social the holistic approach, there are some very important things that people can do that are positive for the brain biology, which includes, you know, the arts, if you're an artist, if you're a musician, if you're a writer, um, if, you know, those things are very um, positive and healing, as is uh, exercise, as is uh, healthy eating, as is being able to laugh, um, as is, you know, any of the positive things in life, keep building. They keep building new circuits that are positive circuits and positive brain chemistry. And we can do that at any age if, you know, if somebody's listening to this in much later life, you know, with their head in their hands thinking, gosh, I've missed the boat. Your, your message is very clearly very positive on that. Oh, you've never missed the boat. It's really critical because this is why we say the brain is malleable, the brain is plastic. And it is important to see this as a living, growing, it is a living, growing organ that if you feed it well, and I do mean literally, you know, you, you, junk food is not good for the brain. It's important to feed the brain well, but feed also in thoughts, in actions, in new learnings, in fitness, all of these things, in warm, positive re- uh, relationships, all of these things do add up to brain health at any age. And in fact, it's even more important as one gets older to actually make sure that all these good, healthy brain things continue to be practiced, you know, right into old ageing, especially in old age. Mm, Fascinating. I know through looking at the research that issues such as dementia, Alzheimer's are so much more prevalent in women. Is this oestrogen activity within the brain simply for women or do do the guys have oestrogen receptors and and are they susceptible to this as well? Yes, the men are susceptible to it as well, but the male oestrogen levels don't have this precipitous dip and um, so there's less fluctuation, but there are obviously large levels of oestrogen in the male brain as well. The female brain, though, however, unfortunately is much more battered by the changes in the hormones in the natural cycle of things. And again, in some women, the cognition really takes a beating if the estrogen sensitivity is high or if there is a genetic predisposition or both or if there is a dreadful social context, you know, lots and lots of trauma that's ongoing. So, you know, it is a combination of factors. And in the male brain, you know, It's not fair, but the male brain is just less sensitive to the environment. This is why young girls who are subjected to, say, the worst form of sexual abuse uh, will carry changes or can carry changes if things don't really turn around quickly, whereas the male brain also, the boys subjected to horrible stuff in early life, may not have the same level of brain changes in terms of chemistry and biochemistry and, you know, uh, the circuitry. 
So there is a greater vulnerability that girls' brains have, unfortunately. Gosh, that is so fascinating. Well, hold that thought because I do want to come back in a moment and pick up on your approach to treating women who come and see you as patients. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So I know that you develop treatments specifically tailored to women's needs and and you talk about biologically, socially, as we've touched on, and psychologically. That multifaceted approach just seems to be so important. Is that right? I think it's common sense. But um, Mm -hmm. yes, I I couldn't imagine practicing in any other way. And I, I honestly think it's not that hard. And it's Bleeding obvious, if we're going to be blunt. <laughs> so, you know, you're, when someone comes to see you, you'll look at their background history, for example. Might the treatment that you offer be different depending on whether someone's had a particular history of trauma, you know, premenstrual mood changes earlier in life, for example? Absolutely. We have very long consultations in that I'm very fortunate that I'm not working in a primary care practice. I'm working as a specialist tertiary consultant. So I have the luxury of, I think I spend two hours with with patients, with women who come. We'll have tea, we'll have toast. Oh my gosh, we're all getting on a plane to Australia. (laughs) Come and find you. (laughs) 
Well, you know, it, it's really, it's really important. And and what happens is we go through everything, and we will talk about, you know, the definitely we'll take the story of like, right, where were you born, and let's go from there, because every person has a very different story, and we're looking for the strengths. We're not just looking for a problem list. We're looking for, well, how on earth did you get over that? You know, this is really incredible that you're here that you've done all this education, that you've had children, that you've raised them, you know, and so on. So you're looking for the strengths. We also look for the physical health issues because in many, in many circumstances, the, the um, body can take some damage from early life trauma and onwards. And so we look for, does this person have irritable bowel syndrome? You know, do they have a strange reaction to standard medications and so on? I also, you know, take a very detailed story of what have you tried, what's helped, what hasn't helped, and, you know, what have you found useful in the yoga, exercise, staring at your navel, you know, anything. Because what we want to do is look at all of the aspects that are positive as well as the issues. So after doing all of that, we will come up with, and I do talk about, you know, we work in the biopsychosocial framework. And I'll actually list it off and go, right, this is what we're going to do for the bio, which may include hormones. It may include, as in hormone you know, treatment for menopausal depression. It may include antidepressant, but we'll do genomic testing, pharmacogenomic testing to make sure that we know that the particular form of antidepressant is hitting the mark because mm. with someone who may have some trauma in the background, they're going to have altered drug sensitivities because that's what trauma also does. It changes really? drug sensitivities. Yes. So we'll do a physical examination. We'll talk about her sex life or lack of. We'll talk about what does she want, you know, what are her goals and how are we going to get there. So it's a very comprehensive and that's why it takes a good couple of hours. But what I've also found is that it isn't just a getting the questions, you know, like getting the information. We're delivering information as we go because I have to explain why I'm suddenly talking to this person as a psychiatrist. I'm talking about, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and they'll go, well, you're not a gastroenterologist. Okay, this is what we're doing. We're doing a comprehensive story because, and I've got diagrams and I'll talk about the interactions. But in that information giving, what I've really experienced is so many women feel validated because they have observed exactly that. They have observed that they've had emotional invalidation with perhaps cold parents who, who, who were not very giving and that then they've gone on to make a, perhaps a poor choice in life partner and then had further invalidation. And then they've developed a cyclical depression that doesn't respond to antidepressants because everybody's been tried on antidepressants. And then they've come up to menopause and now everything's just fallen apart. And so often in, in that, you might find that this woman has fibromyalgia, which is very common, and she hasn't put that together with the early life trauma story, with the current mental health issues. And it's very validating for people to know that there's a link because that that empowers women to then take command. Because, again, I come back to it, you know, these are very cluey people who have been through stuff and they've got skills. So it's up to us to say, right, 
well, let's look at, you know, what we can do with you to enhance those particular positive skills. Extraordinary, mind-blowing, really. Uh, Coming back, picking up, I guess, on the oestrogen point and other hormones, you know, are there other hormones that come into play here that you might be prescribing for patients? You know, what about things like the role of cortisol, testosterone, obviously we touched on earlier? Absolutely. Testosterone is something that is utilised in the... uh, Look, if I could be very irreverent, I sort of call it the holy trinity sometimes. So there's estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. Um, I said this in my Catholic hospital base, which was probably not very wise. (laughs) Well, Um, you know, come on, that's going to land, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there really is a role uh, for all three. And uh, I, I think you're very fortunate in the UK to have Dr. Louise Newsom, who's, who's an incredible worker in the area, doc, a very she's good doctor. She's phenomenal. And, yeah, she's been a pioneer. And uh, again, so um, the use of testosterone is something that she and I have discussed. And uh, it is uh, the third wheel, if you like, of the, uh, of the holy trinity of hormones. I don't necessarily come out with it every time because I'm, I'm forever saying, very importantly, we need to match the patient with the treatment. It's not a cookie cutter thing that everybody's going to need exactly the same thing. And that's really critical because in this era of personalised medicine, this is an important area where, gosh, you know, I couldn't say I've ever seen two people that are the same, not even similar. You know, we do see menopause depression, but each person with menopause depression has a different story. And that that's fascinating, you know. Human beings are fascinating. Oh my gosh, aren't we just? <laughs> Can you know, as a, as a, as a medic, as, as a clinician, would you consider prescribing testosterone on its own for this? You know, if somebody has has a mental health issue, low mood, depression, cognitive function, memory loss, all of that kind of thing, or is it something that absolutely always has to be combined with estrogen? I haven't personally prescribed the testosterone without the estrogen for the menopause story but where we have prescribed testosterone is in the low sexual desire group but I'm very careful what I do there as well because I I mean I I think female sexuality is extraordinarily complicated and I have had the stories which make me shudder which is where a woman will say oh can you get me something to fix my sex drive and you go into it and this two-hour conversation and it's about well, what is it and it, oh no I have to I have to have sex this x times a week because otherwise he will leave me now that is not you know so then I think okay that's that's awful and we have another problem here to help this woman become empowered in her own sense and with her own sexuality so that is an exception but in the woman who says you know for my sake I, I want to increase my sex drive or libido. Um, there are studies that show that the just testosterone gel will help with that. And of course, in Australia, you have a licensed product for women, Androfem, yes. which I think is the first globally to actually be therapeutically licensed and, and prescribed specifically for women so that we don't just have to use the men's version. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with what you have available in the UK, but I, I do. There is Androfem that we have available. 
Yeah, but I, I think in the UK we have, it's like Testim gel. I mean, you can get Androfem privately, but I think the NHS will prescribe testosterone in that form of, of, of Testim gel. That's normally a male product, so it comes with a male leaflet and, you know, we have to scale down the dose and all of the rest of it to make it more suitable. But presumably testosterone is testosterone. There's there's no difference in the hormone. It doesn't matter which form you're getting. Yeah, the, the, it is a form. But again, I, I think dose is really critical and I come back to it that, again, we have this area of personalised medicine that, for example, when we do pharmacogenomic testing for medications, we're trying to get the right dose and the right formulation. So it's not easy and uh, we're not helped by that kind of story, which is, well, just sort of, yeah, here it is. Yeah, good luck. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So are there trials now going on looking specifically at testosterone and brain health cognitive function? There are a couple. I'm not doing them myself, but there, but there are some trials looking at testosterone. There are some studies that actually come from the long COVID work because long COVID, you know, COVID is uh, that dreadful, dreadful time that we all had with COVID. But if there's any tiny, tiny silver lining is that the, the immunology field has really gone ahead leaps and bounds. And in that sense that of long COVID, there's some interesting work suggesting that um, testosterone may be useful in the treatment of this. So, you know, I mean, again, we haven't seen the results uh, yet, but um, people are looking. So Good. I'm Good. pleased well, that there's attention paid to hormones because, you know, again, long COVID we know is a brain condition. Amazing. Gosh, that is extraordinary. And I guess, you know, you're not going to find anything unless you start looking for it. So if, if, the, if the search is on... That's a good thing. It's interesting you talk about the immune system. I remember reading studies early on in looking at at, at treatment for COVID particularly and hearing about people who had gone into critical care in hospital with with severe COVID actually having oestrogen patches applied to their bodies because they were kind of really waking up to the fact that oestrogen has such an important impact on our immune system. Yes, it does. And again, you know, this is why... When you think about the what I was talking about earlier, that the early life trauma that you get cortisol abnormalities, which then has downstream estrogen abnormalities, which then has immune system changes as well. So it is all linked. Um, and also, it, you know, the estrogen patches were also used as a form of hopeful neuroprotection because we knew that COVID was going to impact on the brain as well. Gosh, that is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? I mean, there's just so much, I mean, you know, so much to to say about all of this. I mean, do you feel that there's a a bit of a shift perhaps that's happening in the conversation around ageing generally? You know, globally, we are an ageing population. It used to be all about just wanting to stay physically strong, you know, the stereotypical older person who's hunched over when they walk and they struggle to get up from a chair, you know, which of course is important. But, you know, perhaps are we socially and, and the medical community, are we paying more attention now to the way our brains are ageing as well as our bodies? Yes, I think we are. The quest was for mobility for a long time. It was exactly, as you say, for mobility. But now it's about quality of life. And yes, it's it's great to be living, you know, to an average of 85 or 86, but it's got to be a good 85 or 86 or beyond And that is really where a lot of attention is being paid. And, of course, the other thing is baby boomers have loud voices. You can't shut us (laughs) up. We do. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) 
That's really good. And is there any other area of research going on, perhaps, you know, any of the latest studies that you're particularly interested in and perhaps pleased to see? Look, I, I'm I'm keen to sort of basically there are pockets of, of really nice research going on. But what has not happened, as we started speaking about, is that automatic translation into clinical practice. And I'm, I still struggle with why is this so difficult in the menopause story? And some of the catch-22 that we meet is quite ludicrous. It's sort of like, a, I mean, your older listeners will know about Monty Python, but it really is very weird. So here's the catch-22. All the guidelines around the world, and it's not just in the UK, it's the US and the Australia and everywhere else, say that a woman who presents clearly with menopause depression, we know that, but the guidelines will tell every practitioner that they must use antidepressants as number one, number two, number three. There is no difference between treating a woman in her mid-40s or early 50s who comes up with depression compared to a 30-year-old male. That's point number one. Now, we have done, we have done the sporadic sort of trials. I've done some trials, other people have done trials to look at the treatment of menopause depression with HRT. So that's there, but not in huge numbers. What is missing is a big multi-centered international trial that compares HRT to antidepressant treatment. You know, a head-to-head trial. Not that complex, but in some ways you have to pick the perimenopause group and so on, but it's doable. No one is funding that. No one is funding it. Why? Because they say there's no such thing as menopausal depression. It is not in the DSM, which is the Bible for classification of disease from the US, nor is it in the ICD, uh, which is the European and UK classification of psychiatric disease. So if it's not in the classification of disease, then it doesn't exist. It therefore, doesn't exist. <laughs> therefore, we're not going to fund this trial because you're doing this work in something that doesn't exist. And then the catch-22 is because we don't have the data of a head-to-head trial, we can't change the guidelines because they depend on evidence. Because we can't change the guidelines, the classification systems won't shift. It is. It's so enraging, the whole gender (laughs) inequality, the patriarchal system that, you know, was set up by men. And even, you know, until very, very recently, and I think possibly even ongoing in some areas, you know, drug testing just happening on a on a 12 stone white male. And we don't have very much data, do we, on even some of the existing drugs on, on actually how they affect you know, biological women who, you know, have more estrogen, we have fat disposition is different, you know, we are physiologically so different. And this just has to change. Do you get any sense, Jayshree, that this is changing or it can change sometime, sometime soon? I, I, I think it depends on where you are and which bit of the world, you know, if you're an academic like me or a clinical researcher, then in my world, There is no problem with my patients. They love it. They love the fact that we talk about menopause, depression, that, you know, we'll say, okay, try this, uh, which is HRT, and we will do that. And I I interestingly spoke with some colleagues in Boston, you know, which is a very genteel, very academic place. It's got Harvard sitting there. And they said, yeah, we're not allowed to 
prescribe this for menopause depression because the guidelines are antidepressants, antidepressants, but we do prescribe this. And so everyone's kind of doing this behind the scenes type prescription stuff, which works. So the women are saying it works. The clinicians are saying, I'm getting better results with this. But we haven't got the officialdom to give us their ear, their funding, their classification guidelines. And that's the problem that we're stuck with because that is still, um, you know, people argue about, oh, but, you know, women in midlife have got so much going on. They've got, you know, perhaps a marriage that's pretty stale and boring. They've got ratty adolescent children. They're often managers in the workplace. Um, she's worried about looking older and ageing and her parents are dementing and she's looking after them. Yes, there is a hell of a lot going on, but there is a tipping factor. She can manage all that. She's been managing all of that. But there's a tipping factor that suddenly things start to go really pear-shaped, and I think that's the menopause. But, you know, we get all these other factors. So the big population studies that are still being done, epidemiological case, you know, the epidemiological register studies will say, oh, look, there's no such thing as menopause depression. It's all these social factors. But the problem is they're population studies. It's the wrong technique to actually be able to delineate menopause depression. You can't do it on a population way because you need to have the individual assessments of the perimenopause process. You haven't got a biomarker for this yet. So we're hampered by all these things and the population people keep churning out the same nonsense and that goes against us as well. So there's my there's my my soapbox okay. rent. I love it. I, I love a soapbox. I'm very happy to climb onto a soapbox alongside <laughs> you. Can I just kind of throw this out here as a bit of a devil's advocate question, really? Surely the changes in our brain and all the things that are going, this is just a natural part of aging. You know, why do we all of a sudden, after all these years, all these, you know, thousands of years of, of women surviving, do we suddenly need to be saying, hey, come on, girls, we need loads more hormones? First of all, it's not everybody who goes through bad stuff with menopause. Many, many millions of women are, I mean, first of all, menopause, you can't outsource it. Everyone goes through, all the all biological women go through it. So you can't outsource it. And millions of women around the world sail through menopause with no problem. We're not trying to medicalize menopause. But we also have to recognize that if you just took the natural hypothesis, you know, once you hit menopause and you couldn't have babies anymore, you were done. So in the old days, your life expectancy was kind of like, have your kids, get them to a certain age. And then bye-bye. 13 or 14 yeah. and then shuffle Thank, off this morning. Thanks so toilet. much. Yeah, time to go now. You've, you've served yep. your purpose. You know, you're, you're pushing yep. 60, that's it. Ciao. <laughs> so in this modern era, we spend more time post-menopause than we do pre, in, in, you know, in reproductive life. So that's another feature that, that we, we need to then be able to take care of for those women who are vulnerable to the changes in their brain, which is not everyone. And I have to stress that because I'm never going to advocate that we do, you know, sort of put HRT in the female water supply. You know, right. that's not what <laughs> we're saying. Yeah. But yeah. in the people who are suffering and struggling with it, we have the solution we just need to be able to deliver it without it becoming some sort of backyard, 
weird kind of secret club where you have to knock on the door three times to get HRT <laughs> for your depression. Simple as that. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. So, so thought provoking. So fascinating. Thank you so much for, for letting us hear your your work on it. And I'll, I'll let you get back to your own research now. Just kind of finally, really, as a medical professional, what do you feel is a good way for a patient to start a conversation about all this with their doctor? What would you suggest? I would suggest that, you know, women have quite a good sense of their bodies. Trust your intuition, particularly if you're, you know, going through a menopausal depression, you've been through a lot. You really, if you think you're, you're suddenly changing in mental health uh, around the mid-40s to the mid-50s, you should back yourself and ask your general practitioner or family practitioner to consider that this could be brain menopause. And if you go in there armed with some articles that are out there, um, you know, Louise Newsom's group produce lovely stuff, that helps your primary healthcare practitioner to perhaps steer their thinking away from just standard antidepressants into the hormone era. But also you need to be responsible for your own health ongoing. So you do need to have breast checks and you need to have cervix screening and blood pressure checks and all of those good things and do take responsibility for enjoying life and having those positive experiences. You deserve, and I've sometimes done this, I've prescribed half an hour of fun per day. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so go and have half an hour of yeah. fun per day, no matter who you are, you deserve no that. No matter who you are, I love it. Jayshree, all the way from Australia, thank you so very much for such a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, wasn't that such a pleasure? An amazing listen. I don't know about you, but I kind of want to hop on a plane and go and give her a big hug. But anyway, just amazing to know that there are warrior women in the medical world working to create so much good for all of us globally. Well, for more of the other vital roles that oestrogen plays in maybe other parts of the bodies, do listen to the episode from earlier this year with Professor Avram Blooming and, of course, the latest on testosterone patches for menopausal women. You can look up the episode with Dr. Sarah Hillman. Well, to listen to those and all future episodes ad-free if you'd like to, and, of course, listen to those episodes 24 hours before they go on general release, you can now subscribe to the Lizard Wellbeing show plus and that's on apple podcasts for a very small monthly fee well we touched on trauma didn't we as a kind of past life experience affecting our future health and our current situation maybe and another approach to trauma that we explored on the show recently was emdr and after listening to that episode which was a fascinating listen with dr cheryl cross lots of you very graciously shared your own experiences on instagram sharing them at Lizelle Wellbeing. Julie wrote, I had EMDR for complex PTSD. Absolutely one of the hardest things to do, but my goodness, it changed my life. It gave me such empowerment, a real lifesaver and life changer. I would definitely recommend it. Similarly, Sophie said, I can vouch for it. It's truly brilliant. I had ovarian cancer, age 34, chemo, My father died 18 months later unexpectedly. EMDR was transformative for processing these traumas. 
Gosh, good for you, Sophie and Julie. Incredible to hear how EMDR helped you. It's also helped a member of my family very much to turn their life around. So do take a listen if you think that could be of specific interest. Okay, we've got more big ideas for living well next week. So do join me then. Until we chat then, go well. Bye-bye. The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.